It is June 22nd. Our message this morning is called Righteous Among the Nations. Righteous Among the Nations. You will uh, see in your bulletin that I put some Hebrew words there for you that C-H looks like chastity. It's not. It's Hasidi. Hasidi umot ha-alam. This means righteous from among the nations. It's also where you get the word Hasidic. All of it comes from a root word that is righteous. And, uh, by the way, the priestly tribe of Zadok, that uh, T-S-D, we sometimes pronounce as a Z, <laughs> they pronounce it C-H-A. It's all that same sound, and it has to do with like there's milk in the back of your throat. Hasidic. <laughs> and righteous among the nations is something that a museum in Israel, but not just a museum, uh, it is a governing body with authority in Israel called Yad Vashem, has declared. What's happened is the world is aware there was a holocaust and the world is aware of the atrocities committed against the Jewish people. In fact, one sign I saw in Israel said in the year... 1,933 of the Christian era, the world stood by while Nazis rose to power and put to death 6 million Jews. I found it interesting that everywhere that I went, dates were in chronic era and before chronic era, this one said Christian era. This is because deep in the psyche of uh, Israeli people as a nation and then Jewish people by religion and ethnicity all over the world is the understanding that they or their forefathers were persecuted while the world watched for the most part. I was very uncomfortable hearing this, and I'm the first one to say, wait a minute, we joined the war. We're liberators, all those things. But we need to understand there were years where good men did nothing first. Having said that, Yad Vashem is a memorial so that the world will never forget, and they take uh, Israeli high school students, Thank you, Brad. They take Israeli high school students their senior year to go show them Yad Vashem. Said, this is what the world will do if Israel is not strong. Well, I say all that to say, there were sprinklings from among the nations of people who cared and did something. People who not only believed that Israel was God's chosen nation or believed that the Jews were a people called by God, but they acted upon the belief. Do you see that down towards the end of the pastor's corner, it says by January 1st, 2008, 22,211 men and women from 44 countries have been recognized as righteous among the nations? That's a lot, isn't it? That's not a lot when you consider the criteria. To become righteous among the nations, at least as declared by Yad Vashem, they put their equivalent of the Supreme Court on the task. They began to investigate stories and accounts of people doing good things for the Jewish people. And what it had to involve was risk of personal peril to yourself to rescue Jewish people during World War II. Some six billion people on the planet today. True, there were fewer then. But could you only find 20,000 that you could document that cared enough to do something? Boy, that hurt my feelings a little bit. And I said, well, of the 20,000, since it's all the nation's Surely the United States had an enormous role, right? Because I'm a patriot. So I broke it down by country. Three of the 20,000 came from the United States. And yet, in this country, we have preached a gospel 
that says all Israel will be saved because Romans 11 says it. And even if we haven't said that, we've said, I believe in the Word of God. I am a fundamental evangelical, whatever, whatever, whatever. And yet, there's only three documented cases of people who were not soldiers risking their lives to protect the Jewish people from the United States. The little country of Poland had over 2,000. But it's true. This is kind of like a medal of honor. They don't hand these things out like water. But I want to tell you a story that puts in perspective our judgment. It may sound political at first, and you know I'm not political. I don't even know. We had a mayor's race here the other day, and I didn't even know who was running. Everything that I know about politics, I know from a national news source, and we preach the gospel, not politics. So let's get beyond the politics of the situation. Hear me out. There's a woman named Irina Sindler. She just died the other day. Uh, anybody in here? Yes, we got lots in here. If you are a woman between the ages of 24 and 30, raise your hand. Okay, while I'm talking about Irina Sindler, think about Jennifer, think about Lindsay, think about... Some of you didn't raise your hand. 23. Uh, it's all right, we'll cheat. You can think about Debbie too. That way, this is not a story long time ago, far, far away in a different galaxy. It's about somebody like Debbie or Lindsay or Jennifer. Okay, Irina Sindler was uh, in charge of a medical team for the municipality of Warsaw in Poland. This is before Nazis have risen to power, before they have gone into Poland, and her job is to control the outbreak of tuberculosis. Well, as the Nazis come to power, the first thing that they do is they herd the Jewish people into something called a ghetto. We thought ghettos were urban areas of our cities. The term goes back much further than that. As soon as they put some 500,000 people in a defined city block radius and erected barricades, they cut off the public utilities. Then they stopped the transfer of food. Well, Irina, and I want you to understand, Irina was 29 years old. Unmarried woman, 29 years old, who held this position, began to be moved by God and said, you know what? They're killing these people. And she was not a Jew. They're killing these people. She began thinking about what she could do. So she used her medical status to go into the ghetto under the guise of, I'm checking for tuberculosis, and beg Jewish parents, please, please, you're going to die. Your kids are going to die if you stay here. The few of you that are leaving, I'm hearing stories, are going to be exterminated. And the ones that stay are going to starve to death. Can I take your children? She begged for their babies. She had with her the first time she did this a briefcase. And she put an infant in a briefcase to smuggling past the guards. And she learned that this six-month-old baby would cry, of course. So over the years, she began training dogs that accompanied her to bark at the sight of German soldiers. So that while the baby would cry from the briefcase, it would be drowned out by her dogs barking. Then she took in coffins because she could get more babies into a coffin than she could a briefcase. Then she began looking for other people that would help her by bringing in anything that you could carry out a child in to take out babies. Put yourself in the Jewish family's situation. The most important thing to you is that you preserve your line as a people group. 
Because God has said you're distinct among the nations. And Israel should always exist. But now you have to give your baby to some Gentile. Irina goes and puts the, the Jewish babies in Gentile homes, Christian homes, so that they would not be persecuted. But she did something remarkable. She wrote down as much of the Jewish heritage of each child as she possibly could, and she hid it under an apple tree in her backyard in a jar so that after the war she could reunite them. But that's not, we hadn't begun to get to the end of the story. The Jewish parents had to have some faith in their God that God could use this Gentile to preserve their family line and protect their baby because they watched her carry their kids out in coffins. What about Arena? What risk did she have to herself? She's a 29-year-old woman. She's not any different than the women that we're talking about in this church. The Nazis caught her. They broke her feet. They broke her shins. And she would not give up the people that were helping her, nor her methods. It seems that Arena thought that doing God's will was more important than her body. The people with her gave everything that they had to bribe a Nazi guard so that she could get out of jail and she escaped crawling on her knees in the palms of her hands because her feet were so badly damaged. They searched her house but could not find any records that would help them because she had hidden them beneath the deep roots of a tree. Saints, we owe a debt to the Jewish people because the roots of Christianity are Jewish. Irina kept working and after the war had gone and many years had happened, she began taking her notes and trying to relocate any surviving member of each Jewish family to put the children back in them because as much as she wanted these children to know that Jesus was the Messiah, she wanted them to also understand that they were born Jews and have the right to choose. How ironic. There really should be no choice between Judaism and Christianity. You should be able to be a Jew and be complete in your knowledge of Messiah and there should be no contradiction in terms. But that's not what moves me about the story. Irina died last week. She was 98 years old. She died in a nursing home being cared for by one of the six-month-old babies that she had smuggled out that survived. Irina was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. Don't you think the woman deserves it? She lost to Al Gore. That's not a joke. Now, I'm going to have to get off that subject or we won't be preaching. I'll be uh, politicking. She lost to Al Gore. Is something wrong with our judgment, friends? Something's wrong. When we value a slideshow about a myth more than we would value somebody saving Jewish children's lives and giving of herself body being broken, something's wrong. Turn with me to the book of Romans. I want to show you quickly a larger theological point than I am going to bring it home and away in which we can practically live it. Because what good is all the theology in the world if you don't live any differently for hearing it? See, I would think that during the time of Irina Sindler, there are probably lots of people that believed that God's people were the Jews. 
But how many actually acted on that belief? It's not enough, saints, for us to believe differently than the rest of the world. We must act in a way that is discernible, in a way that is discoverable, in a way that's documentable differently than the rest of the world. Too long we've been tricked into a Greek mindset that says, no, religion's a private matter. Which one of the apostles was it a private matter for? Was it for one drawn and quartered by horses? For one hit with a mallet until he was dead? No, it was for the one boiled in oil. No, not him either. How about Philip, crucified on an X outside of a city because he refused to call Caesar God? Was it a personal matter for him? See, only in affluent, decadent countries, and I love our country, can people call themselves Christians but say it's a private matter. Nowhere else in the world has it ever been a private matter. It's been a public matter that would get you killed. And you know what? You found real Christians. I don't want anybody to hurt any of you. I don't want to be hurt either, and I certainly don't pray for persecution. I don't want to have to wait for persecution to come for people to see a difference between me and the rest of the world. Since we're called to shine. Are you on Romans 9? I want to share with you a couple thoughts about the Israeli people and then we're going to talk more about a practical carrying out everyday mission. By the way, you've heard this quote before but you may not have known where it came from. A man named Edwin, Edmund Burke around the time of our Revolutionary War made the profound statement that all that is necessary for evil to triumph is that good men do nothing. You go back and think about that as it relates to the parable of the Good Samaritan and ask me what your responsibility is to your community on a daily basis. All right, y'all in Romans 9, 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. (laughs) My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Does it sound like Paul loves the Jewish people? Yes. Could we be talking about anything other than the Jewish people when he says, those of my own race, the people of Israel? So it doesn't matter how hard a theologian makes works. Augustine tried to make every bit of this allegorical. By the way, I heard a story that I want to relate to you quickly, and I'll get you a source for it next week. Augustine is the guy that probably most propagated the idea of replacement theology. It had been born under Marcion years before, but Augustine, who most of the church declares to be a great father, is said to have on his deathbed, seemed to have died, took a gasp of air, and then screamed at the top of his lungs, all my books are burning. Makes you wonder about what Paul said about each man's work tested by fire, doesn't it? You read his work. You tell me what you think. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of Son. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Paul gets excited while he's writing and thinking about his own people. Turn with me to Romans 10. 10 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for God, prayer to God, for the Israelites as that, is that they may be saved. How do you think you could read something like this 
knowing there's a holocaust going on, and do nothing. How about Romans 11? Turn with me to Romans 11. We'll read 1 through 5. I ask then, did God reject His people? By no means. I want you to understand before we move on, this is the larger theological point, and I promise we will get to something that you can carry out each day. The idea that the church is in some way Israel is a lie. The church is not Israel. Two distinct, except, uh, separate things. There is a natural Israel and there will always be a natural Israel. Just because you're grafted into a blessing that was meant for Israel does not make you Israel. In fact, the Bible consistently calls you things like wild olive shoots. Neither are you a spiritual Jew. A spiritual Jew is someone who is a Jew by birth who also acts or lives up to the calling on their lives. What you are is a Gentile who is in love with the Jewish Messiah and a co-heir with Israel. Co-heir with Israel. Now, in the very end, we're not going to get into an argument about this. We make up one new people group, period. Israel and all the graft ends are one new entity, and we're not going to fight about that. It's just what the Scripture says. Having said that, if you have bought into the idea at any point in your life, suddenly or directly, that says that the church has replaced Israel and all the blessings in the Word come to the church while all the bad stuff is for the Jews, and there's books on Walmart shelf right now that teach that, we fly away, they get punished. All those kind of theories flow right out of this. Then you need to understand something. Muslim theology is exactly the same way. I'm not going to teach to you about Islam today, but what Islam basically says is the Jews failed in their mission to God. The Christians failed in their mission from God, so God raised up another prophet, the truest prophet, Muhammad, and now all those religions are inferior and must come into Islam to be saved. If you don't believe that God could replace Christianity with Islam, why would we believe that God could replace Israel with the church? It's a dangerous line of thought, isn't it? It always makes us better than whoever went before us. And isn't that easy to do? You have the benefit of hindsight. You can look. How many of you have been so critical of your father until you became a father? Easy to do. You have the benefit of looking and seeing everything. In fact, the Scripture says that what Israel did was written down for us as an example. How dare us look with a critical spirit that says, how could they... Everything that happened to they, them, was written down so that you might not make a mistake. They served you in that regard. Skip a little further forward to the 11th verse. By the way, the first five verses say he foreknew Israel. He's not turned his back on Israel. He loves Israel. Now starting in the 11th verse. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. We don't have time to read it today, but you could write down Deuteronomy 32.21 at the founding of the nation of Israel. Moses says, you're going to blow this pretty bad. And God says, I'm going to turn to a people that I didn't choose for myself. And I'm going to bless them so much that you're going to become envious. See, God's desire was to bless all mankind. It just started with Israel. And hear me, saints, when you've been blessed, you're held accountable first. And Israel's been held accountable to the highest standard a nation could since the beginning. 
But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? If by Israel's stumbling it gave us the opportunity who did not walk with Yahweh God to walk with Yahweh God, what will it be like when they in mass turn towards Yahweh God? I love that he answers his own question. I'm talking to you Gentiles in as much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So, well, what difference does it make? We're here in America, Eric. Uh, the only Jews that we know, you know, we see occasionally, but uh, we're not interacting with them, and we're certainly not in Israel. So why would you even care about this? The goal and plan of God is that the nation who received His special revelation and was held to a high accountable standard and suffered for the benefit of all the other nations would also receive mercy just as you have received mercy. So the larger theological point in this is don't forget about Israel. God says they're all going to be saved. In fact, write down Zechariah 12. Zechariah 12, 10th verse through the 13th chapter and 1st verse. He says, I am going to open a fountain in Jacob, and I will cleanse them. They will look upon the one they pierced, and I will cleanse them from all of their sin and impurity. And he says, they will be saved. Romans 11, 26. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Irina Zindler, Sindler, with an S, in her own way participated in this. She said, but wait, she didn't preach the gospel. No, but she preserved Jewish people so that they could be saved and that the Scriptures could be fulfilled. Have you ever been reading and noticed that Daniel was reading Jeremiah? How crazy is that? One writer in the Bible is reading a predecessor scroll. And he said, I learned from reading Jeremiah that the length of the Babylonian captivity was to be 70 years. He learned that. How interesting. Well, what a neat theological question. God says the length of this captivity is going to be 70 years. What would have happened if Daniel didn't pray and ask God to end it and repent for his people? God said it ahead of time, but then he also raised up Daniel to do it. God has said all Israel will be saved, but he will have to raise up people that will do it. That's the larger theological point. Is In what way can having a briefcase in your house be used for God? Well, Irina found a way to use it for God by smuggling Jewish babies out of a horrible place. In what way could a coffin be used? I mean, what good could come of a coffin? Well, she figured out how to fit about eight babies in one. What do you have that you could use for God? See, there's a larger theological point, but let's bring it home. Some of you are very interested in those kind of things, and some of you aren't, and that's okay. I swim in both pools. Every time we ask for the miraculous from God, I mean every time, God, I want. God, I need. God, if only, right? God has a question for us. What do you have? Turn with me then to 1 Kings. I'll show you what I mean. 
Every time we ask God for a miracle, He asks us what we already have. Tell me when you're in 1 Kings, saints. Y'all so fast. Y'all still awake? You're going to get, you're going to get a sermon deluxe today. I'm going to cram what is normally an hour and a half into what amounts to about 45 minutes. But you got to listen the whole time. Because if you come in here and you sit and you're here only and it doesn't change anything in your life, you've made a fool of me, you, and Jesus. In fact, why don't we just open up and sell burkas or something in here? If I was going to sell something, I think it would be cigars. I'm ashamed to admit how much I love them. I'm convinced that it's like burning incense to the living God. Maybe not. One of the problems with being a preacher is you find a way to justify anything you want. Driving down the road, and Jen says, you know, you're speeding. I said, well, you know, Elijah tucked his cloak in his belt and outran the chariot. We're not bound by legalism. Whatever you want to do. All right, in King 17, how many preachers do you know that would admit to smoking a cigar? Oh, there you go. All right. Uh, in King 17, our point here is, like Irina, who did something for the Jewish nation simply by using what she had, she had a coffin, she had a suitcase, and God did something with it, and that serves a profound theological point in that God preserves His distinct people group so that He can bring salvation to them and the whole world. And Irina played a part in that. By using simply what she had, I'm now asking you, saints, we've heard young men preach about expecting from God, about childlike faith. We heard a mature young woman of God talking about every area of her life working together like a big puzzle in a mosaic for God. So now I'm asking you, you who want a miracle, you who want the pieces of your puzzle to go together, you who want to experience childlike faith, what do you already have? Because when we ask for these things, they're great. But I want to show you in the Word when people ask for the same thing you're asking for, what God says to them. In Kings 17, first verse, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tish, love how God can be redundant, in Gilead said to Ahab, As surely as the God of Israel lives whom I serve, there will neither be dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. <laughs> so Elijah shuts up the heavens. Skip down to the seventh verse. Now, we better go ahead and read the second. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here and turn eastward and hide in the Kiriath Ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. Everybody knows me knows I love this message. So he did what the Lord had told him, and he went to the Kiriath Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. Ninety percent of Christianity is showing up. God said, be there, and he was there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. God, did you ask me to start this church and assemble all these people because the brook was going to dry up? No, son, relax. I'm your source. But, but they, Lord, they. I am your source, Eric. Tell me that's not a good word. Or am I the only one with weaknesses? I'm the only one that hurts. I'm the only one that has a hard time looking at the reality and seeing the substance of what I hope for. Hmm. 
Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once. <laughs> Sometimes, if God were speaking to us, he'd have to say, quick, form your committee. Put down all the arguments. Quick, quick, debate it endlessly so that you can eventually do what I want. Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. Lord, isn't there a rich dude there that could supply me with food? I mean, why has got to be a widow? I mean, come on, Lord. Isn't there somebody there better equipped? I mean, she's going to supply me for food for one day, two days? I mean, she's a widow. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water and a jar so I may have a drink? Does that seem kind of forward? When you're on a mission from God, when you have a calling from God, you're unashamed about what you need. I'm learning that. The reason you're unashamed is because it's not your motivation. It's not your desire. It's not your goal. It's the one God gave you. You know what high aspirations I had for my life? Anybody want to guess? My mom's watching. She knows. Probably embarrass her to death. I wanted to wear those funny little shorts like football coaches and teach history. I wanted to teach history and be a football coach. That was my aspiration for my life. Jesus got hold of me and I have spent zero time with football. I still do study history a little bit. What we're doing in this ministry, we didn't dream up. God gave to us. As she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the... like, oh, why not a prime rib? As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour and a jar and a little oil and a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make myself a meal that we may eat it and die. Elijah said, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have, not from what you don't have, from what you have, and bring it to me, then make something for yourself. Saint, something magical happens when we put God's desires before our own. Say, God, I need a miracle. I don't have enough provision. There's a famine. What am I going to do? This is all I have. God's response is, use what you have for me, and I will take care of the rest. Say, but God, I need a miracle. I need something. Please, something. Use what you have, and I will give you more. You think I just picked this out of the air? I can promise you we can do this all day long. Turn to Second Kings. Use what you have, and God will give you more. Elijah's successor here, Second Kings 4. First verse, the man, I'm sorry, the wife of a man from a company of prophets, a ministry woman, cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take away my two boys as slaves. That's pretty dire, isn't it? I think I'd rather go eat my last meal and die than watch my sons be taken away as slaves. Elijah replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Now, why does the God of the universe need this widow's oil? Why does the God of the universe need this widow's jar? Why does the God of the universe need anything? Anybody got a great theological answer? Let me tell you, He doesn't. He requires you to first show that you trust Him before He comes through for you. And guess what the Bible calls that? Faith. 
He requires you to take a step of trust before He meets you. This is what keeps Him from being your cosmic genie. This is what keeps Him from being an aloof third party that blesses in some cases and doesn't in others and is just strangely unknowable. He says, if you will take a small step towards me and trust me, I will meet you in ways you never could have imagined. Now, the travesty is that as we talk about this, the only way anybody's ever portrayed it is money. <laughs> Money's the least of our problems, saints. Say, Lord, I want to see a miracle. Great, what do you already have? Do you know anybody sick? You prayed for them yet? Say, Lord, I want to see the neighborhood saved. Great, who do you know that's lost that you're not praying for now? But I don't have much. Irina Sindler didn't have the revelation that you have because I've read about her life and I know. But she used her briefcases and coffins to save people. What are you using? How about that? God will take the ordinary, everyday things and do something extraordinary with it? Yes, that's supposed to be the story of your life. Just a regular old schmo, except when God got hold of you, you became something supernatural. Something more than just a man. Something as anointed by God, divinely enabled. If Arena can use a briefcase to save the Jewish nation, what do you think you can do with what God put at your disposal? You know when you hear people say it though, Lord, 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 if I get that house, I use it for you, Lord. If I get that car, Lord, if I got that car, I'd use it for you every day. And then you sin and curse when somebody bumps into it in a parking lot. See, we'll promise God everything we have is His until it comes time to give something that we have for Him. We can't be that way. Now look, I'm not telling you this, oh, bad church. I'm telling you we could hang a mirror back there and stare right at Eric too. We've got to be willing to use what we have if you want to see something. In fact, look, I want to be honest. I keep looking over here at these guys because I was encouraged by their preaching. I was encouraged by Mandy's. But let's be totally honest. Some of what was preached was merely a a nice theory. So, well, what do you mean by that? Oh, man, we should expect miracles! We should expect miracles! Well, great. Show me how you've done that. Church, I don't want to be about a theory. I want to be bold enough to lay it on the line and see it. So, well, we will one day. We already have. We forget what we have. She's sitting right here, was dead and is now alive in a manner of speaking. He said, well, that was Eric's sister. It's different. Hmm. We'll see how different it is when it's your sister. No different to me. See how it is when it's your daughter. I listened to my mom cry over it. I passed by the sign that said, cancer kills 60,000 Texans a year, and cried and said, Lord, please not my sister. I trust you. You can do this, and I know it. And it did. Free yourself of the obligation then to wonder about times you trusted him and didn't see it. Let's free yourself of that contradiction. Let's say God's a great big God and it's not a mathematical formula, but let's be sure. One ingredient to see God move is you must use what you have. I'm not guaranteeing you that if you trust Him, you will not be thrown in the fires in Babylon. What I'm guaranteeing you is that if you don't trust Him, you have no hope but the fires in Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, Know this, O king. Our God is able to deliver us. But if not, we still will not serve you. I am not promising you that if you trust Him in some area of your life, that it will turn out the way you want. What kind of God would He be if He could only work in the way you wanted? 
What I'm promising is that it is impossible to please Him without trusting Him. And if you do, He's able to do amazing things in your life. What do you already have you could put to use for God? See, the the paradigm that we're fighting against is that you sit out there and that I mark on a big board all the areas in which you can do things for God. And see, I give you a title that says this, you are a super fantastic, excellent, extraordinary person and here's your name tag, this big, wear it on your forehead. And then you say, okay, well now that I've been called a super fantastic, extraordinary, excellent person, I'm going to go act like that. I'm saying let's turn that on its head and say, what do you already have that you can use for God? You got a house? When's the last time you let somebody lost in it and loved them and took care of them? You got food? When's the last time you shared it with somebody for the purpose of saying, dude, I don't know you very well, but you look like you could have a sandwich, and I'm in love with Jesus, so I thought I'd do it on His behalf. Get a lawnmower? So, well, I'm waiting for the church. Don't. You are the church. If you're waiting on me, we'll never accomplish any more than I can do. And this church is not about me. It's about raising up people who do it. It's about the church taking ministry by the reins and saying, we've been empowered. God gave us His Holy Spirit. He gave us a teacher in Eric, a teacher in Matthew. And we're not going to get this wrong, but even if we do, they'll help us. But it's our job to do the work of the kingdom. We say, God, we want a miracle. He says, what do you have? I read it to you last week. Moses standing before God says, what if they don't believe me? What sign will you give me? What did God tell him? What's in your hand, Moses? What's in your hand? I'm asking you, church. You want something from God? What's in your hand? You can stand back, sit in a pew and say, Eric, if you would do this, and Matthew, if you would do that, and you know the problem is really Jennifer. You're right. No. (laughs) I'm asking you, what's in your hand? You don't got the same Bible I got? You've certainly heard some of the same preaching I have because I'm preaching it. What holds you back? Is it really me? Is it really our ministry in some way? Or is it just easier to sit on our hands and point at what others should do? I think most of you are so eager, and I know that. What I'm trying to do is encourage you to get off base. The only time I ever want you to be off base. Usually off base is a bad thing. Except all Christianity has been camping on base for so long that we've lost sight of what Christianity is. That's why I'm preaching messages about repairing the world. That's why I'm talking about practical ways to carry out our faith. So, well, I'll put it on a calendar, Eric, and if you go with me, I'll go. Why? Man, I've been doing this for years. I've had guns put to my forehead, knives stuck to my chest. Matthew stood with me. One night, a guy that needed no gun, he certainly needed no knife. I don't even remember his name, but we could have called him Hephaestus. He looked like the Greek god of war. We thought he was going to beat both. Matthew and I looked like his little children. And God appointed a lost person who tackled him in the street right in front of me. And I was so happy. I hate violence, but I was glad it was not, I wasn't suffering it. I've done a bunch of street, and I'm not going to stop. That's not the point. I don't need to go on a mission crusade. I don't need to go on an evangelism tour. My life is that. That's how you're here. What I'm looking for is for you to be on duty every moment of your life. Say, so, well, sometimes, Eric, you talk like our church is small. It is. Our church is small. I'm not trying to stay that way. I want to see each life change, period. When's the last time you brought people to church? 
Don't tell me a sermon was blessed. Tell me who you think would be blessed by it and get them in here. When I say I'm not interested in building the biggest church in Texas, don't be confused. I'm interested in reaching every sincere life that I possibly can with a powerful message about Jesus. What I mean by I'm not interested in building the biggest churches, I mean I'm not interested in numbers only for the sake of numbers. It doesn't work. We're thinning out in here. Eventually we'll find out who's serious and then we'll build on that. And that's okay with me. It hurts. It's hard. It's scary. I feel like I'm being refined. Guess what? That's the Christian life. Embrace it. That's what it's supposed to be like. How many of you ever trained for something and it was fun? And yet it is a little bit, right? All right, y'all will go to another scripture. I can't believe I've done this. Go to Mark 6. We're going to skip to the meat of the matter. This was supposed to be our text today. How about that? I had real trouble containing laughter. And uh, thank you, brother. There, we there. A pastor was talking to me and Matthew one morning, and he was very upset because Matt didn't have a worship list. And uh said, well, what are you going to do? And basically he wanted hymn numbers uh, when he talked to Matt. And he was pastor of another church. And uh, Matt says, look, you know, we, we have some songs that we're familiar with. I just this morning I'm going to move and see what the Holy Ghost does. Might as well have been talking about an alien invasion. And so he looked at me and says, Oh, I guess you don't have sermon notes either. Well, you're a prophet. I don't have sermon notes today. And he goes, Well, when you preach an hour like I do, you need sermon notes. I thought, You're right. If you go about an hour and a half, it's easy. This same guy that thought the only way to see a distinction between male and female was the way they dressed. I thought, God, what do the women look like in your church? You know? mm-hmm. How about that? Matthew, Mark 6. Y'all ready? Yeah. Seemed really upset that my wife wore pants. I said, I like her pants. What's wrong with it? You know? Well, women don't wear men's clothes. Those aren't men's pants. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was very simple. I didn't understand the theological distinction. And I found out he had a problem with my beard and everything else. And, you know, that relationship just fizzled. Uh, okay, so Mark 6. This will be our last scriptural text for you today. But it's a good one. And I'm going to refer to a bunch of others. Is that okay? Yeah. See, if I don't make your fingers tired by turning, you'll bear with me a few minutes. Yeah. I don't know what to do with a 45-minute message, and I gave too long of a preamble. This is good. promise it's good. And this will wrap back in our larger theological point about Israel and are smaller about what you do each day. The apostles gathered, this is the 30th verse, around Jesus and reported to Him all they had done and taught. Jesus wasn't the only one that taught and did things in His ministry. Hmm. Then, because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat, He said to them, Come with Me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. I'm going to have to go ahead and acknowledge here that occasionally it's okay for you to rest. But I would prefer it to be because you've been so tired teaching and doing things for Jesus that you need to rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. I spend time sometimes thinking about, well, you know, maybe if I taught on this subject, they'd really be fired up. Maybe if I taught on this subject. You know when people get fired up? When the preacher standing behind the pulpit is not the only one teaching and doing things. Friends, when your homes are little ministries for people to be saved in, 
people will run to be a part of us. The idea of waiting for movie star pastor to do something is completely lost on me. I don't have the face for it. I don't have the personality for it. I don't have the tone, brothers. I can't do it. I'm not going to. What I'm going to do is teach the Word and expect you to live it, and it'll light a bonfire that people are attracted to, I promise. There is no brother love in me. It's not happening. I love you. I'll express that in my deeds. We're not going to have warm, fuzzy walks down a a beach and talk about it. Okay? So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, but many saw them leaving and recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, He had compassion on them because they were all like sheep without a shepherd. So He began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day. Thank you, Jesus. That's 12. So the disciples came to Him. This is a remote place, they said. And it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Sounds very reasonable, huh? Y'all are thinking about getting to Luby's right now. But He answered, You give them something to eat. They said to Him, That would take eight months' wages. Eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? How about that? Lord, the problem is too big. If they knew what I'm facing, they wouldn't talk like that. The problem's too big. All right, well, what do you have? Maybe you owe a hundred grand. What do you have? Ten? Give one. Period. Do it. Well, my problem's not money. Good. That's even easier to fix. Say, Lord, there's sickness in my body and I'm dying. Okay. Glorify God whether you live or die and go pray for people who are sick. See if you can get them healed. I cornered a guy in my clinic the other day. He might be watching, so I'll be nice to you. He said, yeah, I used to serve God. I said, you used to? What kind of coward are you that you gave up on God? He said, well, see, this and this and this happened, and I prayed for this person, I got healed, and I prayed for that person, I got healed, but then this happened. So, so basically, God came through for you every time, but one time you didn't understand, so you tucked your tail between your legs and ran from the church and haven't come back since? Yep. That was pretty much it. So, well, let's go back and look at your life. What is it that you were doing? What were you doing then that you're not doing now? The early years of his Christian experience was all serving other people. Somewhere along the lines, he got the idea that Christianity was really about blessing him. And he didn't feel all that blessed. So he gave up on God. Saints, the secret to moving God is using whatever you have for him. We all got different things. Now, for fun, let's completely erase money from your mind. That way you don't get confused. What I'm saying is there might be a musical gifting in a home that I don't have, that you do. Are you using it for God? What I'm saying is there might be a discipleship gifting in one home that's not in another. Are you using it for God? If, if a Polish woman can use a coffin and a suitcase for God, what do you have that you can use for God? Let's be honest. Are we just more interested in playing Xbox and going to eat? See? See, there's a message in this for us. God does profound things among the nations, but He uses the simplest, most common everyday items to accomplish it. 
Who would have ever thought that a coffin could be used for God? But it was. It was. And it's true. Our world doesn't ever value it. They'd rather watch a slideshow about global warming. But God Himself values it. How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Five and two fish. I don't have time to teach you all of this, so I'm going to tell you about it. Five. I told you before that five is pretty well universally accepted as a number of grace in the Bible. Here's some reasons why. Abraham, who was chosen by grace as God's friend, offered five sacrifices in Genesis 15. A heifer, a goat, a ram, a doe, and a pigeon. When God changed Abram to Abraham, He changed the fifth letter of His name, which is the fifth letter of their alphabet. Hey, how about that? The fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy, contains remarkable messages about grace. Deuteronomy 4.7 says, Hey, I didn't pick you because you're special. I picked you because I like you. Grace, unmerited favor by God. In Samuel 17, David picked five stones. The promise that five will chase a thousand and so on and so forth, five shows up. Shows up over and over and over. It's even a preference in Paul's writings. He said, I'd rather... Speak five good words to you then. 10,000 unintelligible words. In the tabernacle, everything that was built was built on a multiple of five. The anointing oil of God, the ultimate symbol of God's Spirit and God's grace, had five ingredients, and you guessed it, they were measured out in fifths. How about that? Five, a number of grace. Lord, we, we, we don't have much, but what we do have is five loaves and two fish. Two in the Bible, and I don't have time to go through all those scriptures for you, is the number of covenant. It takes two people to be in covenant. The first two commandments speak specifically of your covenant with God. Two is a number of covenant. Though we don't have much, and yet what they're holding in their hand is the grace of God and the fact they're in covenant with Him. You know what? The grace of God in your life and your covenant with Him, you combine those things and you have something altogether different. You have really perfection. You have all of you need. Five and two is seven. Seven is the number of perfection in the Bible. And I'm not telling you this is numerology. I'm telling you that if you have in your life God's unmerited favor, and all of you do, and you have in your life a covenant with God, you have everything that you need. Let's put it to work for God. And when we do that, when we take little things, oh, I don't know, two suitcases, five coffins, whatever it is that God has given us, jars of oil, a little bit of flour, and we put it to work in a perfect way, pure-hearted, noble intentions towards God, amazing things happen. When they found out, they said five and two fish. When Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass, so they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Grace is not grace if it doesn't feel broken sometimes. You can talk to me about unmerited favor all you want, but until you've been broken, crumbled, realized maybe you did something that was insulting to God, and you're ashamed, you don't know what grace is. The people most qualified to minister grace in this world are people just like Peter who promised, I will never deny you, and then did the same thing he promised not to do three times in one day. Jesus says, now you can feed my sheep because you know what they need to be fed. Grace, mercy. 
See, I'm not trying to beat you up since you don't have a failing that I'm not responsible for. And I've got all the same ones you do, and in some ways, you know, we may even have agreements. You don't look here, I won't look there. But we're trying to move beyond that. We're trying to use everything that we have in a perfect way for God. Then He gave them to His disciples and set them before the people. Jesus gives to His disciples, the disciples give to the people. I'm going to give to you and you are going to sit and suck it up, right? No, you're going to go give to the people. When's the last time you took one of these bulletins that had something written in it and went and talked to somebody and said, listen what our pastor is teaching us. Would this bless you? I don't care so much about building the church as the kingdom, but as far as our lives are concerned, they're the same thing. It's our area of the kingdom. Then He gave them to His disciples and set them before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Great big fish? No, just great big God. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. When you start with grace, five, and a covenant, two, and work in a perfect way, seven, what you end up with is a perfect Israel saved. See, Irina Zindler took the little pity pieces that she had in her life and she used them to see Israel saved. Paul tells us in Romans 11 that if their rejection meant life for us, meant reconciliation for us, what would their acceptance mean except life from the dead? I'm suggesting to you that if you want to see a miracle on any level, You've got to use what God has already given you. And He's graced you with many things because of your covenant with Him. And when we do that, He does amazing things with it. Do you think that woman could have ever guessed the role that she played? Do you think she was filled with a profound sense of what a great person she was? I can assure you, I can assure you after reading about her and knowing women like her, if you asked her what she saw about her life were her own flaws, but considered herself graced by God because that's the kind of servants He uses. When you look in the mirror this week, I want you to see something that God has given you. He's given you homes. He's given you cars. He's given you talents. And ask because you're in covenant with Him that He would use them in a perfect way. And then don't make Him push you out of a car to go talk to somebody. You do what these young men said. Use childlike faith. You look for the opportunity. You expect it. And you know what? You'll find what you're seeking because that's the kind of God we serve. You want to see miracles? Use what you already have. Or you could sit back and wait for me to do it and we'll both be disappointed. I'm using everything at my disposal right now. I'm using what God's given me in grace, in covenant with Him. And whether you like it or not, it's His perfect will for my life. Now it's your turn. Y'all stand to your feet. Still under an hour. I'll let you in on a little secret. I joke about it, but it's never been my goal to preach under an hour, really. Is it encouraging to hear a story about Irina Sindler? Go read some of those. Yadvashem.org. Yad is Y-A-D. Vashem is V-A-S-H-E-M.org. Go read some of them. What I find most interesting about it is when a Jew considers you to be a righteous Gentile, 
confer upon you citizenship in Israel, which they consider to be the kingdom of God. Think about what Jesus has done. Think about that. He's made you righteous Gentiles and qualified you to be a citizen, honorary citizen, in the kingdom of God. Isn't that awesome? They don't even know what they're saying, but it's wonderful. Use whatever you have for Him and His service this week and then come Wednesday and give me testimonies. Come say, Eric, I didn't know how He could use it, but I had this cell phone and I ran into somebody and they needed one and we talked about Jesus. You know? Find something ordinary like a briefcase or a coffin. Something in your everyday life. And use it for God. And you watch. He'll do amazing things. Five loaves and two fishes is not much until He multiplies it by His touch. Join hands. Let's pray.